0: This podcast is brought to you by Dr. James McIntyre and his team at Adjust Your Health in North Calgary. When I met Dr. James almost 20 years ago, I was taking 10 to 12 Advil every day just to get through my workday, not to mention the stuff I was doing at night like alcohol and other substances. I suffered from chronic pain due to car accidents, sports injury, and repetitive motion damage from being a drywaller. I had worked in the trades for nearly 20 years and had more than 10 car accidents, three very serious ones. I had some severe sports-related injuries, Most of my chiropractor saw would only give me temporary relief from day-to-day pain. It was getting expensive and depressing to see the other doctors knowing that I would be right back into the same boat the next morning. I was lucky that the last chiropractor I saw said that she could not help me anymore and directed me to Dr. James McIntyre. After only a few visits, I felt tremendously better. Most of my pain had left, my mobility was coming back, and I didn't need as much Advil. If I remember right, it was only a few months, and I was almost completely off the pills, and life was getting better. I have known Dr. James and his crew for almost 18 years, and re- referred almost everyone I know to him, and they have become Adjust Your Health Advocates. The team at Adjust Your Health Offers a wide array of services including acupuncture, massage therapy, chiropractic, and physiotherapy. They believe in a multidisciplinary approach to patients' care and use a variety of techniques to help their patients achieve their goals of pain relief or injury resolution to improve sports performance. Calgary is privileged to have such a highly qualified team of practitioners available to accommodate your health and well being needs. If you are in pain or an athlete or just want to be as healthy as possible, check them out at www.ayhcalgary.com. Our next sponsor is Paul Nye from Nye's Touch and Nye's Tats. There's some debate over who invented the first motorbike. Several men claim to have the first designer patent regardless who it was my guess is that the very next year some dude started customizing his newly invented contraption. Throughout history men and women have been altering their transportation to move faster, turn sharper, or turn a head or two. If you are customizing your ride to be low and slow, shiny and fast, loud and obnoxious, you have not completed the project until you have your custom paint job done. Paul Nye at Nye's nice Touch is your guy for custom paint on bikes, boats, cars, buses, or anything else you ride. You want a bike that looks like no one else? Nice touch. You want to honor a fallen friend with the hood of your car? Nice touch. You want a mural of your favorite girl on the side of a bus? You guessed it, nice touch. Paul has been airbrushing for more than 15 years and his work will take your breath away. Check out his work on Instagram at Dripping Chrome or on Facebook at Nice Touch. Or call him at 587-435-4602 for your free estimate. Don't forget, Paul will be in a tattoo studio near me soon. And now, on with the show.
1: Yeah. No podcast with Chad Ferguson.
0: Hey, everybody, this is Chad in the I Want to Know podcast. We've been battling some technical difficulties. I'm here today again, second podcast in a row with Angel Fernando. I met Anshul about three years ago at a home and garden show. He had a booth beside the booth uh, that I was working in, and he had this beautiful artwork with uh, butterflies and, and all kinds of bugs and critters from around the world. Um, and he was a great conversationalist. And then a couple of weeks ago, my nephew met him and uh, started telling the story about this guy he met with all these bugs and butterflies and stuff. And I'm like, I totally know that guy. So it triggered me to invite you on the pet podcast. So thank you so so much for joining us.
1: Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me,
0: and thank you for uh, taking so much time with my nephew. He's got a passion for biology and bugs and and uh, all that stuff. And he came over here shortly after his meeting with you, and he was like through the roof excited oh, to wow. talk about it. And so you may get yourself. Uh, um, a very reasonable, if not free, volunteer uh, <laughs> out of him just so he can get the experience because he's got a, a massive passion for, for what you do. So um, just to let everyone know that uh, since you were very little and I'll let you tell the story, have been uh, in love with bugs and critters of all kinds and uh, you preserve them and, and make artwork out of them.
1: Yeah, I do. I started back in uh, in Australia when I ha- where I had my childhood and uh, the creatures in my backyard, they were my... Companions. Being an only child, it helped a lot. Just hanging out and being with the bugs. Yeah. And uh, my early one of my earliest memories was picking up a hornet and it stinging me on my hand. That's so crazy. It got me on three fingers, and I, as I was crying, experiencing the horrible pain. I, I was also wondering how can something so small give me so much <laughs> pain, and that became that was the start of my curiosity with insects. And yeah. There was a spiderling, uh, there was an orb weaver in our backyard and she had built this web and she was trying to catch insects, flying insects, and I would watch her and when she didn't have any luck, I would help her out and uh, catch bugs for her and throw it in her web. And uh, I managed to grow her up for over uh, four and a half years. Crazy. By the time I, um By the time I left Australia, she was huge. Yeah. Um, with a leg span almost eleven inches, she was catching little birds, finches, sparrows.
0: That's incredible that those tiny little webs are strong enough to like yeah. snatch a bird that is powerful enough that it can get itself airborne. Yeah, like it, when you think about the whole uh, ecosystem anywhere, it it always blows my mind. Um, so from from growing up, those little bit of bugs and uh, um. You know, obviously growing a passion for it, even though they're biting you and hurting you and all this kind of stuff.
1: You know, getting bitten and stung is just part of the, part of the, it's par for the course. I mean, we get bitten by mosquitoes all the time. It's not like we're immune from that. So uh, it's not a deterrent. It's more like, okay, how do I manage myself in such an environment so I can get the most out of it? Yeah, yeah. Because butterflies are the most beautiful thing on this planet. For they, me.
0: they are gorgeous. Like it's, you look at some of the patterns and the colors that are on them. It's, it's mind blowing how gorgeous they are.
1: I mean, flowers and fish, they come close in terms of beauty and pattern and geometry. But for me, butterflies are number one.
0: Yeah. I, uh, I have a little bit of a fear of, of bugs and rodents and stuff like that. I love looking at them bet- behind glass. I like to see them in documentaries and stuff. But touching them, I get a little bit freaked out. Um, so that I think that's why I appreciated your art so much, is I got to look at these exoskeletons and you know. Uh, I think you even had some small animals, actual skeletons. Did yeah you not? yeah
1: I have uh, small little finches uh, skeletonized, rats skeletonized, bats skeletonized. Yeah, uh, I work with lots of different small creatures,
0: and and you do that with another bug, right? You use bugs to clean the bones.
1: So there's two techniques. Uh, I, I can't have any live domestic beetles near my collection because they'll eat all the dead specimens. So okay, we have to manage that. So we don't have any dead. Uh, we don't have any live beetles near our morgue. But we have uh, two other skeleton collectors that uh, work with us, and they have beetles, and they use their beetles to clean the flesh off the bones. And yeah. if it's uh, if it's a larger animal, then we can just use uh, ammonia and hydrogen peroxide and the boiling technique to remove the the flesh and just keep the bone left.
0: Okay, cool, cool. So it's it's boiling with. Um hydrogen peroxide.
1: Well, we boil it with hot water first to get all the meat really um, off the bones. Okay. And then once that's off, then we can actually use the peroxide to make it white yeah. because it'll have a, a tan color to it.
0: Okay. I always thought the bone was actually, actually white.
1: Like- uh, well, you know, bone marrow contains uh, a lot of um, properties like hemoglobin, for example. Okay. It can be found uh, in the bone marrow itself, and it's actually many bones are red when they 're uh, defleshed really, and so we have to actually leach all that out, yeah, take the marrow out and uh, make sure that it 's nice and white at the end,
0: cool. otherwise
1: it just doesn 't look uh, professional,
0: yeah, 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 it might look cool though, if you get a like marbling to it type of thing, like just bleach some of it out, you can get yeah,
1: and you know how mother nature when they do when uh, the beetles do that in the wild, they clean the animal up uh after one season of cleaning the bones do turn white because of the sun bleaching okay so it does happen naturally but it's on a much longer scale yeah The process for preserving that is much different than what I do with the invertebrates.
0: I was just going to ask you, like the the butterflies and the the ants and the spiders and the cockroaches and stuff like that. You do, I'd like to hear that process as well.
1: So with uh, any animal that does not have a central nervous system, uh, the process for preserving it is going to be much more challenging because there's no internal structure that can prop it up uh, so that when we dehydrate it, we have to make sure it does not fall apart or lack any structural integrity. So, with a thick-bodied specimen, I often do taxidermy and I, I replace the guts with uh, cotton or paper uh, and that way it'll give it an internal structure so that I can actually work with it. Um, and that allows me to even inflate caterpillars because ca- caterpillars are just like a, a really spongy type of worm, Yeah. right? And so, so essentially a tube. They're a tube, right? With yeah. skin on it and if once it dies, if you were to try and Dehydrate and preserve it with all that fluid inside, it'll just shrivel up and shrink, right? And that'll lose its appeal and luster for our eye. So, one of the things that I do is I would just take all those insides out and replace it with something else so that it would retain that nice, full structure with the color.
0: I highly suggest everyone go to your Instagram page, it's a butterfly art studio because. Even though it's all natural, it's not like you took a paintbrush. There was a lot of work to go to, but it is absolutely
1: gorgeous to see nature and it's in its fullest, if you will. What I, what I pride myself in with uh, the technique for preserving the invertebrates with the butterflies and other arachnids, I pride myself in not using chemicals. Okay. I, I like to use temperature instead. So I use a combination of boiling, freezing, drying. Yeah. In between those stages, I may be able to manipulate those wings and appendages and then stretch them out to way, the way I want them to dry. And then if it's a really thick-bodied specimen, I would have already taxidermied it before I put it into that final state, and then I rapidly dehydrate it, and then I can frame it. So with a butterfly, it takes me about six days to make a butterfly frame. Uh, but, But with the other insects, it can take anywhere from three weeks to three months based on the organism that I'm working with.
0: Crazy, so it's a lot of time going
1: into those, right? But I'm not working every day on the same organism, I'm just doing the ser- series of steps, right? And then every few days, I'm checking in on it to make sure that no wings are drooping, the structure is still retained. If I have to make fine adjustments, then I do that.
0: Yeah, how many uh critters do you have on a go at once?
1: Oh, well, our morgue is about half a million specimens where we store the dead specimens, Dang. Uh, and we have it's a- gonna be a big warehouse. Yeah, it's 2,000 square feet of just dead insects. <laughs> <Holy God>. <laughs> so <laughs> we have a lot of plastic containers, a lot of Tupperware. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how we organize it, based on species and families, so that way it's easier to, for us to find when other collectors order from our website. And then, uh, when I want to pull specimens to be able to work on it for an uh, a sh- upcoming show, I have to stagger my, my time so that I do the butterflies, the beetles, spiders, all at different stages so that the drying time ends up being the same time so I can frame everything at once.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you just spend a day or two just framing and keep the, exactly.
1: the Yeah, down to a science. You've got to have the economies of scale. We make anywhere from uh, 1,500 to 2,000 frames a year. Wow. That's a lot for just my wife and I to do. So we have to make (laughs) sure that we're efficient in every step. Yeah, no kidding. Do you get your kids involved? Yeah. So our uh, eldest son, for many years, he was helping us out. Uh, Now he's uh, graduated and he's on to his own life endeavors. Uh, Our middle son, he's really interested in in pinning. So he helps me pin scorpions and beetles. He tries the butterflies out. Uh, The butterflies are definitely the most challenging for
0: everyone. imagine. There's not much to that structure, right? Like they're... (laughs) <laughs> probably less than, I was going to say paper thin, but they're probably less than paper less thin. Less than paper
1: thin, yeah. If you were to blow on it, like you were trying to blow an eyelash off of uh, someone's face, yeah. you would break the butterfly with that force of a, of a, of a breath. That's crazy. Yeah. so touching the butterfly is not a non, non-starter. You can't touch it. Yeah. You got to use metal instruments to manipulate the wings.
0: So- you would you would take the butterfly and put it in boiling water or in water, or you hold it above to allow it to hydrate.
1: Well, see, that's the old technique that I was taught when I was a kid by a door-to-door salesman. Right, and uh, the, what he told me was, I should boil the specimen and then stretch out the wings on a on a spreading board. He didn't tell me how and how much should I should I submerge the butterfly in the boiling water. I had to learn all that through trial and error. But what I realized was that having a temperature of higher than 85 degrees Celsius often actually destroys the pigments of the butterfly. So I actually developed my own technique uh, of hydrating butterflies using a humid box with antifungal agents, and that would allow me to moisturize the muscle tissue for me to open it up without any type of issue with the pigments. Yeah, that's crazy. But it took years of practice. Yeah.
0: So, the, And and you started this when you were like six or seven
1: years old. I started collecting and preserving when I was five. I really became into it when I was six, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I uh, never looked back. I, I wanted to collect every single kind of butterfly that, that has been recorded. Yeah. Back when I was a, a young child, at that time it was about 18,000 specimens, a species that had been uh, recognized, yeah. And then by the time I was an adult, it was now 20,000. And now recently I've heard numbers as high as 23,000 described species of butterflies. So, And I, how
0: close are you to hitting that goal? Not
1: even close. I'm <laughs> well, not even at 50%. I have <laughs> something like 7,700 different species of butterflies. Oh,
0: my goodness. And do you display these somewhere or are they just in storage for you?
1: Well, uh, so th- we actually have had a number of retail locations throughout Western Canada We do uh, pop-up shops and we do lots of trade shows where people can view uh, the different art pieces that we make from our collection. Uh, But we haven't actually uh, opened up our doors to have private viewings of our actual collection because we don't have enough space. Yeah. Space is a huge constraint for us. To
0: lay out uh, 7,000 butterflies, like that's going to be a a half-a-day walk for people to get a brief look at them.
1: Yeah, I mean... There are days when I go into the morgue and I'm astonished that I actually have this species because it's... uh (laughs) <laughs> escaped my memory <laughs> it's I like bet. oh wow I'm how <laughs>
0: do you remember 7700 <laughs> yeah, right, that's insane yeah uh so uh, i got so many things that i want to ask you yeah, shoot. uh one was uh about australia so are you um of australian descent
1: well i was uh i'm half indian half sri lankan but i had my childhood in australia so okay my first uh five five and a half years of life was in australia
0: okay and that's where the passion grew. Probably there's not a better place on the world to grow passion yeah. for for <laughs> bugs and, and butterflies, right?
1: That's right. It really helps being an only child and being in the, <laughs> the woods in Australia. That <laughs> <Yeah>. really helps.
0: <laughs> I, uh, I did a trip in Australia. We did 30 days there on a Kandiki tour. So I did basically from Cape Tribulation down to Sydney, uh, hitting all the cool spots. It's a Kandiki tour. It's meant to drink and party and whatever. Right. But you still get to see lots of cool stuff. We had gone inland. And the whole reason I'm telling you this story is that maybe you can tell me what bit me. Uh, so we went inland and we stayed on a cattle farm uh, for a night. So we, you know, show up shortly after lunch, you know, we, we go look at, you know, what the cattlemen did back there. We all stayed in like the cattle housing. So like these little sheds out in a field with barbecue and stuff. And then we go and we have this big ranchers uh, dinner and a dance and all that kind of stuff. And this was in November. Next morning we get up and we're heading out to the bus and so we all lined up in front of the big ranch and to take a picture and I'm wearing my Tevas and I look down because I felt this enormous pain in my foot like like a hot coal had dropped on my foot and I see this tiny spider like for anyone listening it was probably just a bit bigger than the eraser on a pencil round the circumference wise and then of course not very tall like a paper tall or whatever And it it was all black with a white dot on its back. And I saw it shoot off of my foot and run back under the dirt. And we take the picture or whatever. I go tell the tour manager, he's Australian, he shouldn't know. And I'm like, I got bit by a spider. My leg hurts pretty bad. And he's like... All right, well, we're two and a half hours from Sydney, so uh, take some Advil and just let me know if it gets worse. (laughs) I mean, we're in the middle of nowhere. Right. And so there's nothing he could do anyway, so I swallowed a couple Advil and got on the bus, and it took probably three hours uh, before the pain completely subsided, probably an hour and a half, and it was, like, barely there. But it took a while to go away. And this is, like,
1: stinking big. I know, I know. These little guys, uh, they... They often have potent venom to be able to immobilize their prey so they don't run away. Yeah. So once the with, with the first bite, they get them and then the prey drops.
0: Yeah. And they can just snack as they feel fit.
1: Well, spiders typically what they do is they want to liquefy their uh, prey yeah. because they don't have mouth parts to chew and swallow. So they use their venom as a primary source to, to convert their food from a solid to a liquid that they can drink. Oh, okay. And so with the orb weaver spiders that I grew up with in my backyard, they'll spin a web, and often the organism is still alive within that that encased webbing. Yeah. And then when she's ready to eat, she'll uh, envenomate, liquefy it, and then the soup is made for her to be able to snack on whenever she wants for a number of days. But with the wandering spiders, that what you described, they are ambush predators, and they'll catch the prey, and they'll often catch prey that are bigger than it's strong enough to be able to hold on to, and so they rely on the venom to immobilize it.
0: Okay. And then same thing, that that venom would eventually liquefy the right. part of the flesh, even if it was like a a marsupial or something like that would be enough to maybe kill it and they would lay down and eat the small amount, that liquefied.
1: The killing, like the fatality of venom is based always on dosage. Okay. Right? So you can have a really mild uh, potency venom, but if you have a huge quantity that's injected into you that that can overwhelm the system, that's going to cause a fatality. But you can also have a really potent venom and only a small drop's injected and all of a sudden, boom, the human being dies. That's so crazy. So we have scorpions uh, in the world where just uh, one tiny little drop from of that venom. If you were to divide that among five adults, it would kill all five adults within fifteen minutes. Dang. Yeah.
0: I don't know if you noticed, but I had to reset my posture because I was starting to <laughs> get creeped out. It is so so cool, but also so scary at the same time. We looked at moving our family to Australia when my kids were really, really little, and uh, um, I didn't think much about the bugs or anything like that. And my wife was kind of talking about it. I'm like, listen, we'll be in a city. Like it's like getting attacked by a bear in air tree. It's unlikely to happen. <laughs> <laughs> was my advice back then. I don't know if I'm right or I'm wrong, but I didn't see a bunch when I was there. We had, you know, that, that one incident, but you get to see little lizards and spiders. I saw a huntsman, mm-hmm. uh, which was a super scary. That That was the first real critter I saw when I was in Australia. I was in a pub. Drinking in Cape Tribulation, so up in the rainforest. And uh, I walk into the bathroom, go stand at the urinal to relieve myself of the four or five beers I had. And you know, you're sort of looking around as you're going, and there's this plate sized spider up in the corner of the bathroom. Yeah. um, Which, like, Cut the stream off instantly <laughs> back out <laughs> quietly and uh, go tell the bartender and of course they were like, oh, it 's just a huntsman who cares it yeah, does he
1: 's not interested in you,
0: yeah, but you asked Canadian boy, and yeah I was terrified,
1: <laughs> yeah, you know when we are at the booth and we 're selling our art pieces, uh, people are so. Um, polarized when they see our spiders usually they're shrieking in fear yeah or they have to come over themselves to come into the booth and sometimes my wife and I we have a debate whether we should be displaying the spiders at all and I and I say yes I mean yeah when we have our booth and we're showing the specimens we want to show a representation of what might it be like for someone to be in the jungle without the danger of being there because they're all behind glass right <laughs> and they're dead
0: <laughs> I, uh, we had a guy like you when I was in elementary school, come to our school and do a whole presentation of all the bugs that he collected from around the world. And this stuck out of my mind because of my fear of spiders, but there was this blue spider. So probably, um, about the size, uh, I'm remembering a long way back but probably about the size of the top of a pop can so it wasn't overly big but it was bright bright blue like almost neon blue mm-hmm. and said that it could jump 15 feet in one leap so yeah. this little tiny thing could sail halfway across the gymnasium and you know in my young man's mind just like it's
1: going to latch onto you and seek its claws in. For sure yeah. <laughs> That's,
0: I don't even know what kind of spider it was but. Well, I, it
1: sounds I, like a P Metallica it's a- uh, it's an arboreal, ornamental tarantula that has a high potency of venom. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. they don't like to come down, and they don't—not the ones that shoot the barbs to irritate the mammals. So they're—they're they're very adept at, at jumping. They can move a meter a second. Some of those guys.
0: Yeah, that is so fast. That's like horror movie style. For fast, sure,
1: right? I was reading. Uh, they're, they're saying that anthropologists were. Um, hypothesizing that human beings have built into them this natural fear of snakes and spiders. Yeah. And uh, when we often see them, we freeze. Right. And freezing is actually the right thing to do when you're coming across a, a cold-blooded creature that uses heat sensing and motion to be able to strike at. And so uh, when you have a creature that has reflexes that are faster than human beings' reflexes can actually adapt to, right. we don't stand a chance. Right. I mean, by the time they're ready to, to come at us, we're already done right as soon as
0: you see it move you know you're dead like that's the way it should go down I was uh, listening to a psychologist talking about uh, this in particular and how we adapt and our eyes actually have sensors to to notice those kinds of movements because we are so helpless in every other way against these creatures is that if this spider just makes a little movement our eyes can pick it up so that we can stop moving or back away or whatever and And then they're adapted to, like, as soon as you look scared, they come flying at you and (laughs) arachnophobia your face.
1: (laughs) So this whole idea of uh, looking uh, scared and feeling the fear, uh, it's it's actually a real thing. Fear is a measurable thing where uh, our heart rate responds differently when we are experiencing fear. And uh, the the vibration and the frequency of our heart rate actually does create a signal.
0: Hormones, pheromones, all
1: those go out. And to a predator, especially an apex predator, they can be triggered by those frequencies and the sense. Yeah. And they can... Behave accordingly, and that's not favorable. So, remaining calm is the key when you're around these creatures. Right, right.
0: Um, I, I totally agree, and and we see it that the dog you met today, Rambo, my friend's dog, is a high-end Schutzen dog, and when he's not in drive, he's kind of a goofy goofball type dog but all of a sudden you take a stick and you shake it a little bit and it just it sparks a little bit of his drive and you watch his whole body structure change like it is so intense to watch or when you're wrestling with him and he's not in drive mode you know he's kind of like goofy mouth open slobbering on you kind of thing but when you get a little bit too rough with him, you just see the focus change you're like dang, that is, you know, one well-trained dog. And right. they sense it on on people, and yeah, it's crazy. Um, so do you actually collect the live specimen, or are you gaining them from other people?
1: So I have a... Um- a network, because it's now a business that my wife and I run. We have to have enough supply to meet the demand. Uh, and there are certain species that are going to be more popular than others. And if we were to treat this like any other business, then it would be very easy for us to um, just reorder stuff. But our business model is not um, a demand-based model. It's a supply-driven model. Yeah. Now, I'm a collector to begin with, and I've traveled to 29 countries now, and I've um, acquired literally hundreds of thousands of specimens through my active collecting throughout the world over the last uh, four decades. But to keep it sustainable, because there's only so much I can collect, and whatever I do collect, there's a damage rate because I'm using nets. to, To get the actual product that I need, I have to actually have people on the ground, in the jungles, growing, breeding them, Ranching them so that I can get the species in the quantities that I need. Yeah, and we have to also uh, work within the compliance of the local jurisdictions, the laws there, as well as the laws in Canada. There's international law that is an umbrella that governs the trade of insects as well. Because okay. there's a lot of there's a lot there are a lot of poachers in this industry. Yeah, and we want to make sure that we're not supporting any of them or incentivizing them. Right. We want to actually disincentivize them. Right.
0: Yeah, because it it's the it, same with poaching any other creature on the planet. That the if it there's they're valuable mm-hmm. then the poachers are gonna run them to
1: extinction. Right. Right. And back in the eighties, I mean there were butterflies uh that were going for two thousand dollars for a, a an imperfect specimen. Wow. Uh, and that's because they weren't being bred, they were protected. Uh so through butterfly farming we actually decreased the price by Increasing the amount of supply to the marketplace, right? So that took away the incentive for the poachers to be able to awesome. go into these protected areas and hunt illegally yeah. to be able to supply the demand. And so by bringing that price down, now everyone is able to get perfect specimens for a tenth of the cost. Awesome, right? And then the the species gets to flourish. The people get to have what they are desiring to have. Yeah. And everything gets to win with the butterfly farming concept.
0: So with the farming, is there genetics involved or do they try to keep it as natural as possible? And the reason I'm asking, you've probably seen that guy that bred the snake to have the happy face emblem on it. And that's what I'm thinking. And if there's a more popular color or shape or design or size, are they working on that or is it just something they just... Natural.
1: So the industry is actually really interesting. There's a a group of people that will be able to grow uh, more common species in abundance. They'll either focus on one or two species and grow them in their huts, uh, using seedlings to feed the caterpillars that they clip from their properties. Um, there's, there's a ranching concept where you have the entire ecosystem the forested area uh, untouched and you're just taking what you need from that allowing, okay. allowing the organism to just uh, proliferate Yeah, and then there are others who are really uh, focused on the super ultra rare high value specimens and what they want to do is create abominations and hybrids out of them, and fulfill uh, the the people who are interested in buying the Lamborghinis and the <laughs> Ducatis, right? Yeah.
0: They get the special, right? The what, yeah, the Labradoodle or <laughs> whatever right. it
1: is, yeah like there there are half male half female butterflies they're called genandromorphs, and they do fetch a huge sum of money compared to the normal male uh, strain and the female strain yeah and uh, it's been tried for decades in the labs to uh, try and create these half male half female creations sounds but, like
0: it would be valuable
1: yeah but they have not been successful okay so there's a lot of effort that's been done in that in that realm but uh, limited success
0: yeah I imagine genetics of butterflies is not high on the science list. There's a couple people that maybe just for the financial.
1: Not the genetic side, but, you know, there's uh, color properties that butterflies have that are very uh, interesting for military. Okay. Uh, So, for example, the blue butterfly uh, that's found in South America, it's a shiny butterfly. Uh, That shine is created by light refraction, which means that if you were to flatten the butterfly's wings... On a 180-degree plane, there's two degrees at which it's not refracting the light back. It's going to be black. So that's what's very interesting for a military. Mm. If you can have a paint that's not going to refract back from any angle that you're looking at it. your stealth. That's right. That's a stealth uh, type of uh, machine that you've created. Right. And so by studying the but- the butterfly wing property, you the military would be able to develop something that has a stealth-like technology based on butterflies. That's insane.
0: Like you think about uh, infrared cameras and stuff like that. That it has to have all come from nature, or the idea came from yeah. nature, right? Like Absolutely. how do see? Not the bat seed. I know they use sonar, but how do certain critters see at night? You know they got bigger eyes, their retinas does this, and so can we put that in the camera so we can see at night? Um, because that's, I mean, war wise is super beneficial, right? And
1: right now, the big thing in the, in the military, from the military aspect, is studying beetles. How they can actually have these beetles carry the cameras and be able to steer them as they're as they're flying, so they're innocuous type of uh, in surveillance. they they can look at their uh, enemies, right?
0: That's like right out of a movie. Yeah. uh, And and maybe there was a movie about it, but yeah, it it blows my mind that most of our technology comes out of the military, but they're all stealing it from Mother
1: Nature. Mother Nature. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, So um, I think Brody was telling me, if I remember right, that you get lots of other people's collections as well.
1: So there have been three other collectors that have passed on, and uh, their estate did not know what to do with it. And rather it be buried in some university collection, they, uh, they decided to donate it to me. So That's awesome. So I now have a collection that spans from 1933 until present day. Uh, obviously, I haven't caught the specimens from <laughs> pre-1975. <laughs> yeah. um, but the collection is vast, and I have specimens from the Nazi time period, I have uh, specimens that are now extinct. Yeah. Uh, and the, the, they're, I mean, the collection is priceless. So, do you have anything that's not been determined yet? hmm. Undescribed species, yeah. yes. I have quite a few that are undescribed. I also have some that have been misidentified and described poorly because genetic studies haven't been done appropriately. Yeah. And some of those species are found just an hour outside of Calgary. Really? Yeah.
0: So is it mostly butterflies or is it wide variety?
1: So butterflies is what I focus on because that's what I'm passionate about. But I do all insects. Um, And that's largely because when I'm in the bush and I'm after these butterflies, all the life in the jungle is eating each other. Right. It's a dangerous environment, right? I mean, something's always hunting and (laughs) eating something else. And often these creatures are trying to eat me. I've been bitten and stung over 2,000 times in my life. So I bring in I bring in the species that I see around me like the spiders the centipedes the scorpions the beetles the mantids I mean yeah. it's all around
0: I uh, I heard a description, I think it was by Joe Rogan, is that if it wasn't for housing and, and stuff like that, we, we would not have 7 billion people on this planet. Correct. That, that the earth would win. Uh, that Mother Nature, nature would, would win. win. And he goes, it's an ongoing war between people and all the other critters out there. And he looks at zoos as prison camps. Like, yeah, we caught you nothing you could do to us here you tell all your friends what we did and and, um, I feel that way I've recently um, started working towards my hunting license and that I went out with a friend this year to go hunting and you know we were sitting in the bush in an area that we thought there was a path and we were just waiting so you sit there for an hour and a half two hours or however long you decide but I was tucked deep underneath this uh, snowy pine tree. Um, and, of course, I can't because I don't have my license yet. So I have no gun or nothing. And you're trying not to move and make noise so that you're not spooking the deer that, that you're hoping to come by. And so I'm sitting there very, very still. And when you're in the woods and nothing's moving or you're not moving and you can only focus on what's going on around you, I swear I heard a fox like in the snow two feet away. And I couldn't turn around with the way the branches were um, sniffing me and and trying to figure out what I was. And then there was a really weird noise that crows make, or their wings, I should say, make when they're flying in the cold. So as the day warmed up, the sound went away. But when it was cold, it was this really... It's what horror movies steal their sound from, I swear. But it was like this creepy, squealing, howling type of Mm. sound that was coming on. But when you sit in minus 20 and the crows fly above you, it's a different sound than when you're in the city or when it's warmer out. For sure. And so it creeped me out. I'm in the bush going... I am going to get my ass eaten out here. Yeah. I got no, I'm not carrying a gun. And I kept looking at John like, please don't fall asleep because you're the only one with a weapon right now. Right. But yeah, like everything out there, if they had the chance, are going to eat you. And I, I find it kind of funny, all these, and I'm not trying to bash them, but like tree-hugging hippies save the animals. They're weak. They're help, They're not weak and helpless. We're maybe a little bit more violent than we need to be or aggressive than we need to be, but fair game, they'll win.
1: I, I I like the saying that I heard that Will Smith uh, said on, uh, on one of the programs, uh, One Strange Rock. He said, uh, "Mother Nature is the world's biggest serial killer." Right. And I think that that is a very <laughs> true statement. Yeah,
0: there'd be never a lion walking by and going, "Oh, that boy looks hurt. Let's just give him some space <laughs> and some di- let's
1: heal him." <laughs> that
0: guy will eat you any day That's of the right. whole week. And then you look at some of the North American animals, like wolves, they don't even necessarily kill you. They just start eating you from the butthole up. Yeah. Like, they'll just dig in and, like... Eat you alive. You you can kick and scream, dude, but... You're being eaten. Yeah, you're going to be eaten.
1: I mean, I I was in Bolivia this year, and I found myself being eaten alive by the insect life around me. Yeah. No matter how much uh, insect repellent I had, it, it wouldn't matter. Yeah. These creatures would find a way, and so... I would wear full-on winter clothing that I would wear in minus 20 gear here, and I would wear that there. In the Bolivian jungle. In the Bolivian jungle, it's sweltering heat, 30 degrees. (laughs) I'm dripping in sweat, but I'm taping up all my uh, openings in my sleeves. I'm wearing a headdress, and they're still coming and biting through. I've got got videos of the bite marks all over my body. It was just unbelievable. And then I had two uh, human bot flies I had to pull out of my forearm. My buddy had to pull one out of his leg. That's insane. Yeah. That,
0: that is scary because when they dig in, and and uh, they can do a lot of damage.
1: For sure. And they're just uh, the adults, are, they're just passing by, landing on you for a split second, moving away. Yeah. And in that split second, the egg's laid on you, and you, you don't even know it.
0: Right. So, what's the worst bite you've ever gotten?
1: Oh, that would be a centipede. I was eight when I was envenomated by a large centipede in Sri Lanka. Okay. And that, that nearly took my life. Um, really? They have a very powerful venom. Uh, it's a hemotoxic venom means the red blood cells rupture and the muscle tissue begins to liquefy. Yeah. And, uh, I had an allergic reaction to the venom. It was, it was bad. Yeah. At that time there was no, um, phones or 911, so you couldn't (laughs) call to get an ambulance. So (laughs) the adults in the house were banging on doors in the middle of the night to get in a car, to get me to the hospital, to get the the life-saving drugs.
0: Yeah. So uh, you were born in Australia. I was living. born
1: in India, and then okay. at the age of six months, I moved to Australia. Okay, and then uh, moved back to India, did my grade one there, and then uh, was in Singapore for a little bit, and then came to Canada.
0: Why all the moving? That sounds. It sounds. I moved around a lot as a kid too. <coughs> Unfortunately, it was that's all good. It was BC, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, uh, but Sri Lanka and India and Australia are all cool places to grow up.
1: So my father did his uh, PhD. Uh, his postdoctoral thesis was done in Australia, um, and he got a full scholarship. Um, so. When he was doing his studies in India from, from Sri Lanka, and then he got moved to Australia and then moved to Canada to do his <laughs> postdoc here in Cal- in Calgary. So it was through his uh, academics that we got to travel around. And then after we settled in Canada, then my, my parents, uh, they decided to become humanitarians and do lots of uh, social work. Okay. So they, their social work and humanitarian efforts took us to third world countries. And that was heaven for me because I'm into the bugs and the right. bugs are most prolific in third world countries. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Closer to the equator. That's right. The poorer people are, but also the cooler the climate yeah, is, right? right? Um, well, that's right. What was your dad's doctorate in?
1: My father did his PhD in um, the philosophy of science. Yeah. And my mother did her, she has a double master's, one in logic and Indian history. Very cool. They would be fun people to talk to.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. So how did the business get going then? So obviously, as a kid, ah. you, your parents guide you through or, or allow you to collect buds and bring them into the house and
1: boil them and do whatever right. you did. Yeah. But my parents were very clear. Well, when you grow up, you're going to be either doctor, <laughs> lawyer, or engineer. <laughs> I love that
0: Indians push so hard for education. <laughs> All my Indian friends are like, yeah. I just wanna, and their parents like. They pay for it. They, they <laughs> push, but it's beautiful.
1: And so I'm like, no, I'm, that's not going to happen for me. Yeah. Um. And it, it was a pretty huge uh, point of contention between my family I and myself. Imagine. And uh, in '97, I had decided I was going to contact. Like I'd done every job under the sun, uh, and no matter how much money I would make, it would never be enough to f- uh, fuel my hobby. <laughs> right. And it's like, geez, there's just I'm, I'm being held back. So I went to the largest insect dealer in the world at that time, and I said, do you have any Alberta butterflies? He goes, not one. I'm like, would you like some? Yeah. He goes, for sure I would. I said, I, okay, well, give me a list of all the species that you would buy. Yeah, I'll go into the bush, and I'll collect them. Yeah. So he gives me a list, and we agree on the prices of what he's willing to pay. Based on that, I go to the bank and I get a loan for a truck. I need an off road vehicle to be able to get into these high, uh, difficult areas to get into. And then I got two contractors. I gave them the prices that I'm willing to pay them. And off we went for four months into the bush, into the Canadian wild, wow. collecting insects. Well, and it's going
0: to be a very short season for butterflies,
1: too. See, the thing is, a butterfly season is from April until September. Oh, wow. And during that time period, there's certain weeks that are going to be blooming for certain species. Yeah. And every species is going to have a staggered emergence. And it's coinciding with their food plants and with the flowering of uh, of their nectar sources. Yeah, uh, And so we would time it. We would go to the spring. For the spring areas, we would go to uh, BC, into the Salmon Arm area. Yeah, and yeah. then as we made it into July, we'd go into the high altitude areas, 6,000 feet above sea level. And we're trying to collect these butterflies on scree slope, uh, the cliff edges, because they're only found there. Yeah. And then uh, by the time uh, it's time to go back to university, I had to pay my bank uh, for the loan and pay the contractors. I had sold all the specimens to the to the dealer. Yeah. I had enough money left over after paying off my entire debt and the contractors. And I'm like, oh, well, this is viable. <laughs> <laughs> and so... Um, I went to in, I went to Sri Lanka the next year set up a butterfly farm there with the understanding that I would sell all my bread specimens to that dealer yeah. and that was a huge success. It, within 3 months I raised 90,000 specimens of which six, wow. yeah it's a lot. But uh, I was How many different breeds? I worked on 3 breeds only. Okay. And Out of the 90,000, 60,000 had uh, torn their own wings as they were emerging out of their chrysalis, which is normal. Yeah. And so we released them because we have no use for the imperfect specimens. And I was able to sell 30,000 specimens. And I thought to myself, well, the reason why he's the biggest dealer in the world is because he's got people like me and others uh, supplying him. Right. Well, why don't I just do the same thing for myself? Yeah. So I duplicated that uh, farming idea 24 times around okay. the globe and secured my own supply, and uh, I decided to compete head-to-head in the marketplace. And since 98, I haven't looked back, really. I mean, I've tried other jobs, but it's, uh, it's been the butterflies full time. Wow. And so do you still run all these farms? So some of these families have come and gone out of existence. Like uh, we were working with a, a, a charity in um Central African Republic. Yeah. And they were run by the nuns. Okay. And there was a civil uprising that took place where rebels came in and hacked everyone. <coughs> yeah. So the orphanage, the nuns, they all got murdered. Wow. That that ended our entire supply chain from Central African Republic. In in Peru we had uh, four generations of a family that we that had been working with butterfly farming for generations and they died from a landslide, all of them gone. Wow. That's the
0: crazy part about third world countries in those areas, right, is that it's so unstable.
1: So unstable. And then we've had families that die off from HIV. Yeah. Um, And so even though I've done this 24 times, we've had families that have passed away or been killed, and we now have to create new uh, relationships. So it's been over 10 years that I've lost my, the family I worked with in Peru. So, uh, I'm hoping this year I'm going to reestablish a new relationship with a new family.
0: Yeah. That, um, that's scary to think that, I mean, one that that your business is based on, but that it's so unstable, uh, for, for so many people around the world. It's also giving them, a real viable job that, oh, that yeah. uh, you know, they don't have to sell their kids. They don't have to go into prostitution right. or slavery to be able to, to survive.
1: They don't have to sell their trees off for a one-time sale. And then they sell it to the, the logging tycoons. Yeah. They get a one-time payment and then they're... It's a pittance for what they get. And, well, and they
0: probably get robbed for it
1: anyway. Right. And then they are bound to the land that they sold to the logging company for the rest of their life. And it's indentured servitude. Yeah. They're basically slaves on their own land. That's crazy. So we through butterfly through the butterfly programs that we have established, we actually have put in water wells in remote areas. We've put in uh, schools, uh, medical clinics, uh, roads. That is amazing. And it's all through butterfly farming. Yeah. I, you wouldn't
0: think it would have that much impact out there, but it uh, does. Is that still recording, Eric? Or is it not moving on Audacity? That's oh, okay. Thank you. Sorry.
1: <laughs> That's okay. Get
0: <laughs> with our issues. <laughs> um, that that you can have such an impact around the world with something as as cool as butterflies.
1: See, with uh, third world mentality, I shouldn't generalize because there's different cultural differences in different areas. But the general idea is that if you incentivize a person that is in survival mode to produce something that you want yeah. and they are able to do it uh, successfully over and over again. The moment that they're rewarded, now that's the positive reinforcement that they are now incentivized to continue that same behavior. Right. And that's how I'm able to get these butterflies consistently year after year in mint condition because these people have, have seen the money and the effect of the money and they want to now...
0: Out of necessity, they would become the expert, like literally the right. best person.
1: The best person. I, I, I defer to them because they know how to be able to navigate in some of these jungles. Yeah. It's, some, of the, some of these places are bog infested. I mean, I myself have had 18 near-death experiences related <sighs> to bug collecting. And uh, I'm, I'm, I shouldn't be here. I'm really lucky to be alive.
0: It's it's not even the bugs though, right? It's everything plus the bugs. Right. Like you walk through a bog, and what kind of lizard or snake or uh, alligator or whatever right. is is crawling around inside there? That uh, what have you been bitten? Like, like
1: what? Oh, I've been bitten and stung over two thousand times, but I I nearly lost my right leg to a an alligator in the Amazon in in Brazil. Oh, dude, <laughs> the you know the the encounters with the animals are interesting and they're scary. Yeah. Uh, I've been I've been rushed by a, a lone bull elephant in Sri Lanka tried uh-huh. to stomp me. Uh, th- that's all very scary. But what's even more scary are people. Yeah, I've, uh, dumbest hel- creatures on the planet. Right. I, <laughs> I've been held at gunpoint. Um, yeah. by narco traffickers entering the jungle in Peru. I've uh, unfortunately been kidnapped in Mexico trying to set up a butterfly farm there. Yeah, the, the, the people factor when you're dealing with. Jungles and jungle mentality. There's no, there's no law. It's just natural law, right? Yeah, yeah. Survival eat.
0: of the fittest.
1: Everyone's got to eat, and you got to do your best to survive and adapt. Yeah, it's
0: craziness. I just that blows my mind. I, I, I understand that it's out there. I'm not so ignorant, but it also makes me appreciate where I am right now. Like, we could go downtown, right. the worst city in Canada, and what's going to happen? Right. Maybe a guy takes twenty bucks from you. Like it's it's pretty safe here right yeah
1: it's relatively safe here
0: yeah that's uh that's insane i just can't even imagine so are you still actively um collecting your own or is it almost all subcontractors no now?
1: i i really enjoy collecting yeah uh it's it's a huge passion of mine the thrill of going after a butterfly in in such difficult terrain to be able to understand its biology, its ecology, figure out how to be able to lure it to you. Because these nets that I use... It would be like fishing, right? Like how do you
0: convince it to come over here?
1: Right. And the the obstacle is the bush. Like you can't swing your net in the thick, dense jungle. Right. And some of these creatures are, some of these butterflies are flying only at the top of the rainforest canopy. How do you get them down? So you got to figure out all these techniques, how to bait them and lure them. And, uh, and then if you're lucky, if you have the right aim and you swing at the right moment, <laughs> then yeah, maybe you have a chance of getting it. A lot of people think that I'm just plucking them like they're flowers. No, I'm not. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of hard work and it's a lot of fun. I would
0: imagine that just sounds it'd be like hunting with a camera, or like right. a, you're you're trying to outsmart it, figure out the system, beat the system, and, and get a hold of it.
1: And it's not like I'm going into protected areas. I, whenever I, whenever I go on a collecting expedition, I make sure I go to uh, areas that are not requiring any type of um, uh, permission. Right. Or and if I do have, if I work in a country where it's complete um, ban on all flora and fauna, that I do. Uh, get permission from the government to be able to enter a zone to be able to collect yeah
0: it'd be pointless to 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 have it snatched away as you flew or bust out of the country right
1: why would i risk my entire life's work over some mishap right right? or some misunderstanding or some if i'm behaving badly no that's that's foolish right
0: i want to hear the kidnapping story so
1: bad (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that's a tough one um So I had a contact here in Canada where he had um, access to rainforest land near the Yucatan Peninsula. And so I went down with him uh, and we were staying in his apartment and we were doing the logistical, laying out the groundwork for where we are going to set it up. And uh, one night we had gone out for uh, dinner and drinks and um, the taxi driver, he had seen an opportunity and he took us away from our destination and he whistled out and there were eight cops that, uh, came out and, um, they were not the federales, they were the local police Yeah, and, uh, they had, they were in full armor gear, like metal batons. Um, they had the Kevlar vests. They had, they were fully armed and then they pepper sprayed us, ripped us out of the vehicle through the window and then, uh, they decided to have fun. So wow. for them it was uh, for them it was a good time. It was just uh, another night having fun beating up two guys. They were it was racially motivated. I, I mean, was going to ask they they did say uh, a few times they were calling me a effing niwger okay. as they were urinating on me and uh, they took their metal batons and kept striking at my head. They had both my arms. Uh, held by two other guys as they kept on pounding and uh, then they curb stomped me. So it was the damage that I incurred from that, uh, that impaired my, my language faculties. I was fluent in four languages up until that moment. And then it was my buddy that had wiggled away from the beating from the other cops. And he, um, as he got ran away, he saw that the They were all on me, and they were about to pull the trigger. Yeah. And he's yelling at them, why are you doing this? Like, in Spanish. Yeah. He's done nothing. Like, just leave him alone. And uh, he took off his belt, and now he's swearing at them, and he's tied his belt up into a knot. And he's trying to whip at them to try and get them off me. And so they re-pepper sprayed him. They popped his eye out. Oh. And uh, so now that gave me enough time uh, to be able to stand up, and I started running towards uh, a street lamp. And I got to the street lamp, and he managed to wiggle away. And he ran towards me, and his eye was dangling. He fell to the ground, and I picked him up, and I did a fireman's carry uh, to the apartment. It was about a um, le- little less than a kilometer away from where we were kidnapped.
0: And, and other than being mostly, uh, sorry, racially motivated, was this they were trying to get finances out of you, or no, they just it, no. were having fun?
1: No, it was all fun for them. Uh, I. Like I was begging and pleading for my life, of course, and for them they were they were laughing, yeah, they were pistol whipping me and when they were urinating on me and calling me those things, you could see that for them it was having a laugh really so I, I when we were back in the apartment, I put his like we we used his finger my finger and we put his eye back in, and I knew that I'm I'm wrecked. I need medical attention. Yeah, I knew that he's wrecked, so we took a cab down to the hospital, and we saw the federalist uh, station post on the way. So we had the cab stop. We filed a police report, and as soon as uh, we told them that who did it, they stopped helping us. They we wouldn't we wouldn't get copies of our statements. We couldn't get anything. It's a team mentality, right? So when we went to the hospital. Look, the federals had already called ahead and said, "Don't serve these guys." And the doctor said, "Oh, you guys are fine, no problems." Wow. So we had to be uh, emergency evacuated out of the, out of uh, Puebla um, that day. Wow! And it took me nine months to recover.
0: I, I would imagine head trauma is is uh, no joke. It, it can yeah. have mass effects, long term effects, lose short term memory. Obviously, you said you lost a couple languages. Yeah, uh, the, yeah. The the brain trauma is nothing to be messed with.
1: Yeah. So I'm I'm afraid to go back to Mexico. And I that, would imagine that happened uh, January seventeenth, two thousand three. So that's a long uh, time 16 ago. 16 years ago. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And you've so you obviously never been back.
1: Never been back. Yeah. I have uh, I have a few guys there that uh, that grow butterflies, collect butterflies. I work with them, but I don't have the courage to go back. I yeah, I, I I don't blame you at they all. They bent my spine, put pop ribs out, it gave me brain damage. No. Yeah,
0: I uh, I'll maybe share with us off the air because I've said this stuff before about brain damage and. Uh, <laughs> Daylight I did that again, time. I'm so sorry. It's all good. Um, and about active release therapy with our sponsor, Dr. James McIntyre. So I'll get you that information after the right. fact. Well, thank you for sharing that story. That is intense. My heart is pounding. So much so that a <laughs> little beep scared the daylights out. Sorry. Yeah. That's all good. Um, yeah, that that is a real passion to be able to put yourself in that position to to get your collection. Um, do you, Have you set out... Like a a timeline or a goal to to get all these species, like is you know you're missing what fourteen thousand <laughs> species <laughs> um what what's that look like?
1: Well, what it looks like is I have to earn a living to support our family, yeah. not only supporting the the families Stupid that we had kids taking <laughs> all your money. <laughs> <laughs> so there's families in the jungles that we support as well. So that's a very important piece of how much revenue is going to these places as well as our own living. Yeah. Then there's um, the whole maintenance of the business to keep it growing. Uh, and as long as, um, like my goal is to actually not have to do these shows to sell the art so right. I can focus on curating the collection. Ultimately, I'd love to be able to have the resources to build a museum in Western Canada yeah. so that, because we have nothing like that here. And it's a lifetime of work by a Canadian artist, and why not have have that being showcased here for in Western sure. Canada? I think Western Canada deser- deserves something like that. And it would be a shame for when I pass on to not have a legacy for others in our society to be able to enjoy and understand what this person has been doing his whole life. Right.
0: Not only to tell that, like, I mean, you should be taking time to write books and and blogs and like that's a
1: lot of time involved, right? It, it,
0: it's a lot of time, and uh, I mean, I'd
1: love to do that.
0: You could build a whole team, but it's the finances that come around yeah. it, and the amount of sales, and um, I mean, you have a really good following right now. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, I, I'm very happy with how things have uh, turned out for our business, and people seem to really like what we do. Yeah, uh, and that's wonderful. It's just I have a plan and I have to get there and there's certain things that are happening now where it's like, okay, I have to take this as my priority and right. leave my dream of building a museum on the back burner.
0: One little baby step at a time. That's right. That's it. Yeah. I, um uh, the lady that uh, was here before you, that I had a meeting with, and she's like this highly motivated um, woman of business. Like she's she's made millions off of Amazon and oh, supporting wow. similar to you, supporting families around the world in a, uh, in an electronic way. So as opposed to them having to go work in a factory, she pays them a good wage to respond to emails, and she oh. sets up all these. So it's amazing, amazing woman. Interesting. And what we were talking about was people's drive, right? So like your drive and mine and MMA fighters and Michael Jordan's and, you know, those people is, is trying to dig in to what creates us inside people is, is what, like, I, I appreciate it. I love talking to people with this drive, but I don't know where it comes from. like, I don't come from a background of people that were highly motivated yet, you know, I work a 50-hour week with my job, I do 20 hours of volunteering, I'm growing a podcast, I have a clothing company. Like we I do all these things and I I don't know where it comes from and I would love to hear what your thoughts are on <laughs> <laughs> on that drive, that passion.
1: You know, I think uh, my response is going to be a little it, it might be interpreted as being kind of dark. Okay. But here goes. Uh, from a very young age, I was always taught by my mother that we are all alone, Kay. that we make our own destiny, we make our own future, and that if we ever want justice, we have to go out and get it. Yeah. So, learning that as a life lesson, as a kid, having that drilled into my head, I realized that if anything is to be, it's up to me. Yeah. The world doesn't owe me anything. I have to go out there and carve out my space. Right. And when I look at <clears throat> when I look at butterflies and how they live in the jungle, for example, okay. everything is trying to eat them. Right. And butterflies are pretty innocuous. All they're doing is just drinking fluid. (laughs) non-aggressive. Non-aggressive. They're just drinking fluid. And even if they are aggressive and territorial, they have no means of defense. Right.
0: right? As soon as they're called out, they're done. It's got the weight of a fart, basically. (laughs) Right, exactly.
1: And what blows my mind is that this organism, the most beautiful thing on this planet, is able to not just exist, but it's able to conquer and proliferate in the most harshest of conditions. Right. And if something that beautiful can do that, yeah. then I think my mother's teaching is actually quite true. Just be focused and go for what you want and create the life that you want to create. Right. Because nobody else is going to do it for you because everyone's alone. Right. Everyone's on their own. Wow. And uh, it really did, I mean, that lesson really did drive home into me when I visited the concentration camp in Germany called Buchenwald. Okay, and uh, there was a sen- there was a statement on the entrance of that concentration camp, and it was along the lines of, uh, "You are all on your own." Right, right. And I was like, "Huh? W- how interesting!" Looking at it from a positive perspective, that sentence, and a negative perspective. Right. At the end of the day. If I want something to occur in my life, if I desire happiness, if I want to have a life that's worth living, I've got to go out there and create it. Right. No matter what. No matter what obstacle. And butterflies Uh, are my obsession.
0: Yeah. I I, I don't think that's that dark, though. Uh, um, I could see why people might think that's dark, but I really believe, um, I don't know what your religious background, I'm a Christian. Um, What we believe is that God has this great plan for us, but we have to do all the work. He's just going to open the doors and direct it and lead us and um, if your eyes are open. So essentially, I mean, we know there's something great out there. It just is a matter of us putting the work in to do it. And I think that's what you're saying. is like you know you're alone. You know that it takes, and by alone, it just means you have to do the work.
1: Yes. Uh, I mean, you and I do differ um, in our philosophy where I don't, I don't think I've got a second chance. I think this is it. This okay. life is it yeah and uh, if I am to have this attitude of woe's me, look at how tough my life is, look at all the <laughs> right. crap I've had to go through at the end of the day, who's that serving that's serving the pity from somebody else that right. i'm that I'm getting for what it's yeah. not moving me forward right. so instead of looking at my life experiences as being uh positive or negative i just look at it as okay what do i i I got breath in me i'm still alive 18 times later that the world tried to kill me i'm still alive i might as well do what i need to do yeah right i
0: i absolutely love that and and eric can attest to this is that first you got to do what you're supposed to do like we all have things that we have to get done in a day and you need to focus on that first and then i think big part of that um Dr. Jordan Peterson is a person I really enjoyed listening to. And in his book, he talks about, uh, first, let's do what's right for you. So do the work. Do the work that you need to survive and grow and get to that next level. But it can't only be good for you. It has to be good for you and your family. Right. And the community and the world. Right. And to me, that was so powerful. It really changed my motivation. And I think it falls in line with yours. For sure. You have to do that work. You have to do the important stuff. Every single day.
1: I mean, I, I have no, um, (laughs) I know how lazy I have been. (laughs) I know how I procrastinated. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a human being like everyone else. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, I just have to be reminded, I mean, how close is death? Right. It's, it's uh, around the corner. It could be in the next minute. It could be in the next minute. And it's such an illusion that we all live in, thinking that we're going to live the next day. Yeah. And we make all these grand plans, and we not. We forget about being in the moment. Right.
0: Uh, uh, not to bring up Jordan Peterson again, but he said something great. He's a clinical psychologist, so people come in to, to, to get therapy from him, and they're... They, uh, um, He'll uh, have people come in saying that they're super, super anxious. And he goes, I don't understand how everybody isn't anxious. We're the only creatures on the planet that know we're going to die. And we sort of know the timeline a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So how are you not freaking out every right. single day over this? But we somehow put that out of our mind and we, we, we move on with our day. And some people are very motivated to grow things and to change the world. And I, I find it so inspirational knowing what the butterfly industry and you in particular are doing in it around the world, it it, it's, it warms my heart to, to, to know that that whole industry is a big uh, part of supporting families.
1: You know, I agree with uh, a lot of what you're saying. Uh, one of the things that my wife and I have done, we wanted to create a business model that shows the world how we can do biological art in a way that actually leaves a green footprint. It's yeah. done sustainably. Uh, this industry has been wrought with... Lots of poachers, people uh, who are not um, thinking about the environment, people who are behaving recklessly. They don't have the idea of all of us uh, should benefit. Yeah, They have just the, the greed factor. And uh, there are elements that have tarnished this industry that make it look um, not very good. Mm-hmm. And I wanted, like my wife and I, we wanted to be able to be that beacon of light saying, hey, look, there's another way. We can actually do this in a way that, it's not so bad.
0: Yeah, that's inspirational. I uh, I really do appreciate uh, the people that go the extra mile. And again, like your mum's advice I think is valuable. Obviously it worked and yeah. there's no right or wrong by by any means. And uh I I really try to dig into what, you know, where that where that passion comes from like there's got to be an energy or a supply of something that 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 drives you or keeps you focused like that you've convinced most of your family to be on board with what you do right <laughs> you have a son that has stepped away into his yeah. own thing which he should be doing right. um, but your your family supports you in what supports them i guess
1: yeah you know i people have asked me that question and i've often heard people saying oh it's the it factor um, he's but got what he, is it yeah what is that and <laughs> yeah. i i don't I don't think I can subscribe to that. I think it has to do with uh being focused, having drive and perseverance, yeah, I think those are the three describers i can I can articulate of what really uh is the underlying motivation for me yeah i I don't have the i don't have that uh greed thing that. Is prevalent in our industry. I'm not really interested in having being the biggest or the best. Yeah. No, uh, for me, I want to, I want to be able to live a life that's meaningful. Yeah, I want to leave a legacy behind. Right. I don't really think my life amounts to much other than that. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, I'm going to be food for the the maggots.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, what else can you expect? Right. Is to. To do good as right. best as you can, and to leave a legacy. And I think the the doing good part is you know doing the best you can in everything that you do.
1: And I like being excellent. Honestly, I like right. being excellent.
0: Yeah, I think I told you that we were, we crashed while we were trying to record our first one. Uh, I don't like losing to anybody, especially inanimate objects. Right. <laughs> I was livid. I'm glad that you encouraged us to figure out a different solution than than you coming back, which. For sure, I'm going to have you back again oh, uh, later on in the future. Um, but yeah, there's there's some people that are just okay, like whatever life gets me, I guess that's what I get, and I'm just not that person. And I don't know where it comes from. I couldn't give you a good description of what the motivation, what the drive was either. You know, is it factor? factor? Um, was it a gift given to me? Was it the my the culture that I grew up in that drove me in the opposite direction? I, I don't know. I
1: don't know the answer. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a combination of many of those factors. I, I don't like, uh, I don't like being told what to do. Right. I don't like that at all. And uh, so it, having a
0: regular job would be miserable.
1: And I've and I've done that, yeah. and it's just not my thing. it's the worst job you had? The worst. Don't job? Don't say drywall. No, it it was siding. Oh, yeah, construction (laughs) (laughs) you got
0: to be some kind of tough to be a sider, right? They do it all year round. Yeah. Blistering sun or freezing cold.
1: Doing siding and working on the oil rigs, that was uh, two of the lowest jobs I've had.
0: Yeah, yeah. And they're noble trades.
1: For sure. They're necessary. They're noble. It's unfortunate uh, how the system is um, designed so that people who are people who are suffering from addiction can still rise up and oversee an entire crew.
0: Right. Yeah, I I totally agree. It, and, and the system is designed, as it is in the third world countries, to keep us in, in uh, um, enslaved, essentially, right? They, they encourage you to go buy the next bigger truck and the bigger house, and yeah. you, know, you need to have this, and you need to have that, and everything that is priced in our economy is priced to take as much money from us, and they know that the numbers. They know how to keep you as a servant. Uh, There's a
1: lot of unhealthy programming that's taking place on all of us.
0: Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. I am so done with regular TV and news and stuff like that because all it does is try to convince you to buy something or, right. to, to, or to
1: believe in something.
0: Right. Uh, I, I 100% agree. And I like that um, I choose what goes inside my head. I Pick my pastors. I pick my church. I pick my podcasts. I pick my movies. I, p- I don't let the TV flow and just take what I. I don't even listen to the radio anymore because I can't. the The power that it has over you is too much.
1: Yes, I, I find that over many things that there's a lot of uh, unfortunate uh, influences that that affect our lives in right. an unhealthy way. Yeah, I mean, right now one of the things that we're facing when we're in our booth and we interact with the public, uh, the public often has a very strong, negative, visceral reaction to the artwork. And they really? they can see that there's something beautiful that's touching them inside, but then they think that there's something wrong, that the, something inside is being touched because it's a dead creature right. in a frame. yeah, And then they want to be... Uh, righteously, in, uh, with righteous indignation come and chastise us for what we do right. when the first reason why they came into our booth is because they fell in love with the colors. <laughs> right. Right? So there's this dichotomy and then we have to navigate this very uncomfortable conversation <clears throat> when the i'm dealing with a lot of people that have been brainwashed into thinking that collecting butterflies and insects is actually the primary source of the decline of uh, the insect life that we see on this planet yeah. when in fact it's regular people's daily behavior whether they're a vegan or not that's Purutans, actually
0: pesticides yeah. whether
1: it doesn't matter how the human being is living yeah. our activities are such that it is always going to be hurting some other life form, our, our very existence. Yeah. And that's the nature of how we are integrated with Mother Nature in all of this. She's the biggest serial killer in the world. It's a dog-eat-dog world out it there. It is, yeah. you Just try not to die today. So one of the things that I like to say is that 99% of all life on this planet has come and gone. It's disappeared. Right. We've had five major mass extinction <laughs> events. Yep. We have a very tiny sliver of life that continues to remain on this planet. And if I've figured out a skill, how to make dead things last forever so that we can appreciate and learn from it, I think that there is value in that. For sure. Yeah, I, I,
0: yeah I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, we are due any day for another mass extinction. Sure. And, and people aren't living their lives like this could be their last day. Uh, go love on somebody. Go talk to somebody. Go find out who they are. Go do something good. Buy coffee. I don't care. Just do something. Be grateful for where you're at. Right. Right. I uh, I used to teach a uh, self defense course out of uh, the last church that I was at, free for the community. We, we fundraised, got mats and equipment and all that, and I would uh, teach this course. And the only cost of doing the course was to tell me something you were grateful for that day. Oh, wow. So if you showed up, we all got into a circle. We started doing our warm up, and before we could go into training, everybody had to give me something that we were grateful for. One, It was super beneficial for me to, to focus on being grateful and to watch other people do the same thing. I think it was better for me than it was honestly for any of the students because it completely changed my mindset to every day, Mm -hmm. focus on something that you're grateful for. And there's so much power in just going, this is pretty
1: damn good. Right. Like I'm on borrowed time. Yeah. I should have been gone 18 times ago. (laughs) Exactly. So why wouldn't I, why wouldn't I relish in the fact that I get to live another day, I get to breathe another day. Yeah. And as long as I've got breath in my body, I'm going to give it all that I've got.
0: Hug and kiss your kids and cuddle with your wife on the couch and all those beautiful things that we get to
1: do. Don't get me wrong. I still need to be reminded of my own (laughs) principles (laughs) because I I get trapped. as we all do how do you not fall for stuff
0: like we're uh, yeah you know what i think this is a beautiful way to end the podcast is uh being grateful so thank you so much for for coming and doing the podcast thank you for having me jen Uh, i appreciate that we will have you back again tell people how they can find you
1: uh you can find me on instagram at butterfly art studio facebook same thing butterfly art studio Our website is www.butterflyartstudio.com.
0: So just Google Butterfly Art Studio, and you're going to find some amazing artwork, some great, uh, I want to call them bugs or critters. I don't even know the right word. Well,
1: we do have critters. We do have bugs, but we have lots of butterflies, too.
0: Butterflies, yeah. Go check out the butterflies. They're absolutely beautiful. So everybody, uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. And please go check out those websites, and we'll catch you at the next show. Eric, want to go to outro? Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. This podcast is over.